Hello, and welcome to this episode of Triggered and True, featuring renowned emotional health consultant, Laura Duncan. Thank you for being here, and thank you for investing the time to learn how to take care of your soul. If this podcast sparks any questions, feel free to submit a question by going to triggeredandtrue.com, scrolling to the bottom of the page, and clicking ask. If you would like to learn more about Laura Duncan, we encourage you to follow Laura on Instagram and Facebook. Also, a great resource for you to consider is the Compassion Method Master Course. This course is a deep dive into Laura's life work, the Compassion Method. The Compassion Method is a process that empowers you to learn to see and comfort your internal pain and to discover your true self, your true self, that beautiful, wonderful part of you that has been there all along, but has simply been covered up. To obtain the Master Course, go to CompassionMethod.net and as a podcast listener, you qualify for a $50 discount that can be obtained by typing in the coupon code PODCAST50. Again, that's CompassionMethod.net, coupon code PODCAST50. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Brian Frizey alongside Laura Duncan, and you're listening to the Triggered and True Podcast. This is a podcast that's all about you discovering you, going back for you, being with you. You're more than the pain you've experienced, the behaviors you're expressing, and the thoughts that run through your head. Together, we will find your true self, which has always been with you. It's just been covered up. Tune in as we show you how to feel your pain, get comfort, and go play as you return to you. It's time to transform from triggered to true. Hello, Laura. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Very good. Well, we have kind of a heavy topic today. And, um, but I know that with you, you have a wonderful way of making heavy topics not feel so heavy. I try and try to simplify it and try to make it easier to process because it's so heavy. It's difficult sometimes to process. Yeah. And helping us see that the Heaviness is heavy because there's a bunch of under thing. There's a bunch of other things going on at the same time that a lot of times Mm -hmm. we're we're unaware of, and that's especially true, especially true of today's topic where we're going to be talking about grief, and not just talking about grief, but also learning how to identify its hidden forms. So, uh, back on episode number set number seven, uh, we shared a lot about your journey. You shared a lot about your journey Mm -hmm. through the grieving process, and specifically the loss of your husband, Jeff. And that's a great episode to go back and listen to for sure. So I thought for those that maybe haven't heard it or that it's been a while, um, maybe if you could just give a little bit of background, because I think it's really important that the listeners understand that you going through this process is what leads us to where we are today. Yeah. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, so if you just want to give a little, little background. Yeah. Just so that summary, we're going to go more in depth into other areas of grief as well today, but just the summary of um, my journey with the compassion method started through grief. It started through losing my husband uh, 14 years ago. And through that process, I learned how to process grief for myself and for my kids. And then eventually for you know, many people going through things. And grief is such an interesting thing because we usually primarily see it just in death, which death is definitely a very 
difficult form of grief. But what I learned through the process of my husband dying and walking through pain and grief is that we've all experienced pain and grief. We just haven't recognized it, especially if it didn't come in such an um, extreme form as a spouse dying, as a father dying and what we went through. And so that's a big part of the compassion method is just learning how to process grief and yeah. process pain. What would you say, and in that episode, you shared quite a few things that you learned through the process, but maybe just kind of take people on a little bit of a step-by-step of your your learning and um, your learning to also have patience with other people when they say or do crazy, crazy things. <laughs> yeah. And now you understand why, mm-hmm. you know, at the time you probably didn't, you understand that they're triggered, they're scared, they don't know what to say. And they're very scared. So you're scary yeah. to be around when you're grieving. Yeah, definitely. They don't want to catch it. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that. Like sometimes people would avoid me in the beginning, especially when the emotions were so big and so heavy that a lot of people didn't want to be around it because it felt like they were going to catch it or they were going to have to face their own pain because that's what it brings up inside of you when you see someone else hurting, especially someone that you care about. So it's very common for people to say things that are so, you know, yeah. inappropriate, <laughs> not what we, we should be saying or doing. But a lot of times we end up using that as blame. Instead of dealing with my pain, I can blame people for not helping me process my grief. I can blame people for saying the wrong thing. I can blame people for not being there for me. I can blame people for not being there for me the way I want them to be there. And that's a big thing that happens in grief that keeps us from actually facing our pain to get the comfort we need because we end up blaming our external world for not helping us process grief when really we have to learn how to process grief in our internal world. And that's the difficult part that we're avoiding. And that's what I had to face. And that's what I helped my kids to face. Well, ultimately that's also very empowering. Yes, it is. At first, at first it's easier just to blame and say, they said the wrong thing. They weren't there for me. Now I can just stay stuck here, but it's very empowering to say whether people know how to be there for me or not, I know how to go through the process. And I've even, I feel like I've even been able to help people or teach people how to be with others in grief too, which I think is if you're listening to this and you haven't personally experienced grief in a, in a the form of death, being able to learn the compassion method is a very helpful way to be with other people in their grief. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people that maybe are trying to avoid it, a lot of reason they avoid it because, you know, they're scared of obviously that happen coming close to them, like something like that happening in their life mm-hmm. or with one of their loved ones, but yeah. also they don't know that they could be okay yeah. if it did happen. And so much of the compassion method is, is helping people learn how to be okay, regardless of what's happening in our external yeah. world, even if there is yeah. a death even if Mm -hmm. there is something like that going on. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of your other major learnings, you know, and you can even start with like things that you probably think that were really silly that you ever believed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and you're like, gosh, that was really silly of me, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happened and I've actually heard other people say this too, after the fact, but I remember in the moment thinking, if I really open up my heart to grieve my pain, it's going to be it consume me. I was really worried about becoming a depressed person because I thought if you really feel the depth of the pain of losing Jeff, then you're going to stay stuck in that for the rest of your life. You're going to be a depressed, you know, 
person that's not going to be able to function well in life. And that was really scary to me. And I could tell that subconsciously, sometimes consciously, I would avoid pain or getting super, I would, I would, it would feel like I'd kind of like go to a certain point in it. And then I would pull back because if I felt like if I went over the edge of grief into that, the deeper, heavier part of it, it would keep, it would consume me. And so I could feel the avoidance of pain happening. Also, um, grief felt so scary. So not just that death felt scary, death did feel scary, but also the grief process, feeling my emotions felt really scary because I didn't know how to, I didn't have a process like this to be able to walk through. And so it just felt like all of this is going to come up and you're going to have nowhere to put it and you're going to have nothing. You're not going to know what to do with it. So it'll actually cause you to be paralyzed, stuck in it. Well, I would say the, the part about grief being so overwhelming, you'll get stuck in it, be depressed. That's definitely something you've learned that mm-hmm. not only is that not going to happen, mm-hmm. but you absolutely need to let yourself feel this. Exactly. Yeah. And I kind of describe it as keeping your sadness inside of your heart is like, becomes like a toxin. So because we're avoiding the sadness, because we don't know how to feel it, it's suppressing inside of us. And as it suppresses, eventually it's going to come out that volcano that comes out because we've been suppressing for so long. And so I always tell people, the more you cry, the more your loved ones cry, the better, the more they Mm. express their emotions verbally, um, or just being with the better, because it's like a toxin you're getting out. Not that sadness in itself is a toxin, but sadness that's not grieved becomes anger. Sadness that's not grieved becomes depression. Feeling your sadness will never lead to depression suppressing your sadness leads to depression. Hmm. So it's actually quite the opposite that my fear of facing it, thinking that it would lead me to a more limited life because of depression was actually completely the opposite. The more I processed my pain, the more life came in, more joy came in, more peace came in, more I was able to get the toxic suppressed um, sadness out of my system. So if we start to embrace it as a good thing versus a negative thing, it's really helpful for ourselves and for others. That's really good. Just to kind of reiterate, feeling the grief, feeling the pain will not lead to depression. No. Suppressing it will. Exactly. Also liked your comparison to a toxin because whether we're talking grief or really any pain, I think you could apply Mm -hmm. that to any any type of pain. Mm-hmm. that we won't face, that we won't do, creates yeah. a toxin. And definitely when we wonder why people do the crazy things mm-hmm. that they do, yeah, they've got this I toxin would even, Exactly. You know, like it's pretty popular for people to say like toxic, you have to re- recognize the toxic people in your life and you need to like get rid of them or you need to have boundaries, which I agree, we need those things. But I would challenge you before getting rid of a toxic person, recognize that toxicity that they're having those behaviors comes from suppressed pain. So get curious with toxin people, toxic people, not necessarily because you have to have them in your life, not because you can't say no. Maybe even if you never even talk to the person again, get curious with them because all toxic people have suppressed pain. They would never act with toxic behavior if they didn't have suppressed pain. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think we could ever overemphasize that enough. And I think that you mm-hmm. can go, you can go as 
extreme with that statement as saying that all of the relational human relational issues on the planet can be traced back to these toxins running through our veins that have we, yeah. these toxins, this, un, this unsuppressed grief or pain mm-hmm. um, or the suppressed, excuse me, the suppressed pain or grief that yeah. we have not faced. Yep, exactly. And it causes us to do all kinds of crazy. Yep. So on the defensive approach, we want to face our grief because we don't want to lead to suppressed emotions, which creates toxic behaviors and toxicity inside of our internal world. But then to take it even another step, there's actually joy that comes from facing your pain because with facing your pain and feeling it, comfort comes. And with comfort comes, joy comes. Letting go, peace, joy. I've had some of the most profound, joyful moments through grief because I've learned how to navigate the pain. So now I don't, because on the journey of pain, you're going to experience joy too. But if I suppress my pain, I suppress my joy. Yeah. So what most people would not think is you can have joy in your grieving process. If you face your pain, it accesses joy in the middle of your grieving process. Well, we were talking about death and obviously that's a very dramatic and obvious source of grief. You kind of hinted on, you know, there was many others. And mm-hmm. so part of our conversation today is we want to help people see some of the hidden forms of grief. Because even mm-hmm. if you have processed a really big one, I guarantee yeah. you there's mm-hmm. other ones in your life. Oh, yeah. Less obvious that are running in the background system that have not been comforted. Definitely. So what are what are some of these different, these types of what we would look at maybe as more hidden grief? What are some of the sources? Um, it could be loss of relationship, even if someone's still alive, if you're estranged from someone or you're no longer having the same intimacy or connection with them can be divorce. It can be, um, if you're, if you're no longer in relationship with your kids, specifically grieving the, um, loss of a child, even if you haven't physically lost them, um, it can be a job, you know, for a lot of us, we work 40 hours a week and we have a job that we feel like is kind of somewhat of a love source for us. I know that sounds interesting to people, but if you've been going to work with certain people and you've been doing certain things and finding your value and your worth in a job, and then you lose a job, it can have a severe grief reaction to losing a job. Um, Another thing can be grieving what didn't happen in our lives. That's something that commonly people overlook, grieving what our early childhood wasn't, grieving what our teenage years weren't, grieving what our 20s weren't, our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, grieving what we had hoped for. If you'd always wanted to go to college and you never did, you can grieve the life that you thought you were going to have. Or if you had a relationship that didn't work out, that's what you really wanted your life to look like, you can grieve the life that you thought you were going to have with a person. And that commonly happens. But again, we suppress it, especially like, for example, with a relationship you had in the past, you get married, everything in the past is in the past, but that doesn't always mean that you grieve those past relationships. You just moved on to another relationship. And sometimes we have to go back and grieve those relationships that we had in the past, even if we're happily married now. Well, and even some other ones that you've talked about before, uh, one I'd written down was um, inability of a caregiver to attach to you mm-hmm. in your early childhood yeah, development. Yeah, that's one of our biggest griefs because instinctually we knew that our mommy and daddy were supposed to take care of us. And if they weren't able to either because of abuse or because of unmet need, 
that we carry with us, that grief of wanting the mommy and daddy that our heart instinctively knew we were meant to have. That's a deep grief. I think that is ultimately our primary grief because even if we had good parents, there's some level of lack there that we're grieving. And it's so important to grieve that because if we don't grieve what we didn't have in early childhood development, we can't introduce other forms of comfort through the compassion method because that suppressed grief is a barrier and a wall that keeps comfort coming in to comfort us during those time periods that we didn't have caregivers attaching to us the way that they were meant to. This was something I had written down that you had shared with me um, some time ago. You said kids uh, zero to 12 years old have the ability to see the real parent. Mm. That real parent has been a source of pain because they saw the real parent, the real person for who they really are, Oh, never, so sad. Even when you were saying that right now, I'm like, oh yeah, keep going. But then they never acted out who they were or who they yeah, are. I forgot about that, but it's a hundred percent true. It's not just that kids see the shortcomings of a parent. They're able to see who a real parent is. That's why even a parent that's doing drugs and having unhealthy behavior, a child will still want that parent because they still see who that parent truly is. They're just not able to act that way because of other circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so sad because you have eyes to see the real parent. Yeah. Well, hopefully this gives, yeah, I mean, we could talk about kind of so many said, different things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so hopefully this gives the listeners a really good idea that, hey, there's a lot more here than what you might think when you just think mm-hmm. about grief. Yep. And so would it be safe to say that these hidden forms of grief oftentimes are more detrimental because we just don't pay attention to them. We don't pay attention to them. We don't acknowledge them. Our logical brain will say, you know, that's in the past. We've moved on, even if we've never processed it, especially again, if it's not a physical death, but it still feels like a physical death. We don't have the justification to feel that big of feelings we feel like we don't have the justification to feel that big of feelings because it's not as big. And I've heard that so often with my grief process, you know, someone will be going through something that they're actually having a a stronger reaction than I was in some ways with Jeff dying, but like, for example, going through a divorce, they're just devastated to even a higher level than I was feeling with the death of a person because it hit them so deeply. And that's what I told them. I said, you can't judge grief at different levels because it's how we process the events and what it means to us and how it makes us um, personally sad about these things that impacts it. It's not the circumstances. It's how we process it that's going to make the grief so much bigger. Well, I think back in my own life, a lot of my, a lot of my life, I would be like, well, I shouldn't feel this way because. Mm-hmm. Of course, people you, have had it worse. So that's a common There's thing. always someone, right? Mm-hmm. You will. Yep. Well, unless it's unless you're Job, I guess you'll always find somebody <laughs> that had it worse, and even he could find someone that had it worse. So, I mean, yeah. There's always someone but, that has it worse, but we do that, and that we do that to our own detriment because it minimizes. Mm-hmm. It minimizes our pain, so that we feel like, well, we shouldn't have it, and then we just end up suppressing. Exactly. Minimizing your pain is suppressing your pain. And some of the common things people say, especially like for like early childhood development, they did the best they can or they could and probably true, but that doesn't mean that you still aren't grieving your loss of what they could. It's another form of denial. Yeah. Yeah. Then we say the same thing of like, you know, 
It's not as bad as somebody else. Other people have it worse. Those are all forms of denial, suppression. And this really ties with our last podcast. Emotions are not the enemy. Um, no. we, we, we want, we want them to be coming up and, um, and how you're feeling, your heart is 100% reliable to tell you how you're feeling, to tell mm -hmm. you how it's feeling exactly. and let that be the gauge, not mm -hmm. your logic as mm -mm. to how much comfort you need or how much yep. time you need to spend in this process and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. It's important to know. Otherwise we again, end up suppressing it and not recognizing it because it doesn't come in the form that we will allow ourselves to feel that level of grief. So another thing we talked about back on episode seven is we talked about, okay, you had this obvious grief source, you know, this like, of course, that's a huge grief. But what you learn to recognize is that that very obvious grief source was made so much bigger mm -hmm. because of it kind Compounded of stacking grief, yeah. on top mm -hmm. of. So just share a little bit of your journey there and then also tie that back yeah. into how you help people today. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I call it compounded grief. And what that means is we've had grief experiences all throughout our life. And like we're talking about right now, you may not recognize some forms of it, but let's say that you've had five grief circumstances in your life, small ones, big ones, you've had five. And let's say you had one in your early childhood development, you had one in your teenage years, you had one in your twenties, you had one in your thirties, and they're spread out throughout your life. A lot of times when we have a big event happen, sometimes even when we have a small event, grief event happen too, it doesn't always have to be a big one. But when we have a really big grief moment happen, we'll feel really big moments connected to it. And it feels justifiable because the, the circumstance is so big. So of course we should be feeling a big response to it. But once we actually open up the grief we're feeling, will find those other five experiences inside of it. So when I help people now, if someone's recently gone through a death, I won't necessarily focus as much on the that death because I don't want to fix that. I don't want to get rid of it. I want the person to be able to process the grief present day of what they're going through. But what I can help people do is help heal, meet the needs, bring comfort, to the other um, grief experiences we've had in our lives. So it takes, it maintains that in the center, we're going to have our grief of present day, but the offshoots of grief that create compounded grief, we can comfort and care for, which helps bring down the triggered reaction to grief to a place that we're more connected with our true self while we grieve. You will not be able to pr process present day grief if you have past grief that you haven't taken care of mm. and it doesn't have to happen in a day, it doesn't happen to have right, right away. I always have people take their time because all we can face is the present day grief we have right now. But eventually we want to be able to process that because this is what's happening. When I have compounded grief from past experiences paired with a present day grief experience, it causes me to trigger go into my amygdala in my grief. Now I'm in fight or flight and this grief is a monster. And what's happening right now is gonna, it's all or nothing, it's extreme. It's never gonna stop. If I give into it, it's gonna take over because I'm processing my grief through my amygdala, my triggered brain. 
when I take care of compounded grief behind it and I bring love sources in, gift givers in, and I fill up my heart with love, I'm now able to stay in my sophisticated adult true self brain when I process grief. Processing grief from your adult brain versus your triggered child brain is a completely different experience. But because most people don't understand this, they're processing the grief grief through their triggered brain, Hmm. which makes you feel super out of control, all or nothing. I'm never going to get better. It's always going to be this way because that's how our amygdala thinks. But if you process grief through your adult brain, your adult brain knows it's not going to feel like this forever. Your adult brain can see perspective where you can see grief, but you can also see your good memories. Your adult brain knows that it's going to be okay. It may take time, but it's going to be okay. So you can mm. see the difference between those two grief processes. So it's very important to recognize, are you processing death or any grief experience through your child self, your child brain, your triggered brain, or are you processing it through your adult brain, your sophisticated brain, your true self? I think I think it could be revelatory that people can even think of like, I mean, I can grieve from a place of clear-minded, tender-hearted, mm-hmm. at peace. Yes, yes. And and that's really what you're describing is if you're in your adult brain, you're able to grieve from that place yep. of being okay. Like, you mean I can be okay even when this happened? Yes. Exactly. Yes, yes you, you can. can. I know that almost if you're listening to this right now and you're, you know, just recently had a grief experience happening, I bet your brain's saying, no, I can't. I cannot process grief like that. But you can through the compassion method, dealing with our early childhood development pain, which is our beginning um, foundational way that we process grief, rewiring, recoding how we process pain will allow you to process clear-minded, tender-hearted, and at peace. And in that way, that that would be how you could grieve with one who has hope, as one who has hope. Yeah, yeah, that's a really uh, mm-hmm. good conclusion. Mm-hmm. Do you, if you remember, do you remember thinking of compounded grief in your own personal scenario? Do you remember like an example of one of those things that maybe you uncovered when you were going through this process that was down yeah. in the weed, down in the weeds there underneath? Yeah. I really like to, um, how my brain works. And also because I know what I know with, through the compassion method, um, I like to connect dots. I like to take the feeling I'm feeling right now and go, when did I feel this feeling before? What does this remind me of? Mm-hmm. And it's so mm-hmm. interesting how like exact it is. I'm still going from memory, but my dad left when I was 12 years old. And I remember what that felt like when he left. I remember the empty feeling, kind of the punch in the stomach, the unknown, not knowing what I was going to do, feeling like I had to do it all by myself. That exact same feeling is what I felt when Jeff died. It wasn't just I was grieving his death in the sense of him dying and not being with me, but I was grieving. I'm all alone again, punch in the stomach. I have to do this all by myself. Because other people could go through a death and, and because in their early childhood development, they had a mom and a dad there for them. They didn't have anyone leaving them. They don't have that feeling. So they might worry about finances or they might worry about, are they going to get remarried? Or they might worry about, you know, their children because that's their trigger based on their lack. But it was specifically my trigger at 12 years old. I was resurfacing with the exact same physical, mental, and emotional reaction 
present day with him dying or 14 years ago when he died. So then suffice it to say, but you didn't know the compassion method yet. I mean, no, you had I had no idea. You hadn't, okay. So, so you, but you, did you recognize that like years later or you recognize that in that moment or you were already, your brain was already doing this dot connecting. Um, I wouldn't say I had the cognitive awareness of it. Like I didn't have the name for it. I didn't have this process. That's what I learned through grief. But I remember feeling, um, feeling this feeling of like, this feels bigger than it should or yeah, exactly. Both. It felt bigger than it should. And it felt extremely familiar. I'm like, I knew it. Like, even though I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for a time that I felt it, I was like, this feels exactly that way. And so yes, familiarity was definitely a factor that I was, but I didn't have like, it was more like looking through like a glass dimly where like, like I could like kind of feel it and see it, but I still didn't know what to do with it. And I didn't know, I was just like, this is interesting. I can feel this is bigger than it should be, even though my logical brain was right, like, your yeah. husband just died. This should be this big. But then I could feel like my bearing, my bearings were off. You know, like I felt like I was not myself in that moment. And I chalked it up to just being in a lot of grief, which makes sense. But if I would have known what I know today, it would have made a big difference in how I was feeling my pain at that time, because I would have been able to take care of more of my dad abandoning me at 12, bring more love in, get more full. And then that would domino up and directly affect how I would process that death. Yeah, that is, that is powerful. But I mean, the uh, benefit we all have is that you, even though you saw through that glass dimly, Mm -hmm. you, you kept peering into that glass till you could see more clearly and you developed a process to help the rest of us maybe go through this with a little more wisdom, a little bit Mm -hmm. more insight. Yeah. Yep. Started with curiosity and the curiosity led to ultimately the compassion method, because I knew something is going on here and I don't know what it is. And I'm going to be curious until I can understand what's happening neurologically, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera. Yeah. Well, right at the very beginning, you talked about, you know, one of the one of the sidetrack things that could prevent a person from dealing with their um, pain, which was mm-hmm. blame, mm-hmm. you know, yep. um, whether you blame people that weren't coming, you blame the world for what happened. If there was an accident, yeah. you know, there could be someone to blame that caused an accident. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, ultimately we can blame God, you know, there's always someone mm-hmm. to blame. We can always oh, find, yeah. always. find someone. <laughs> yep. Um, and then another side of that, we talked about blame, but shame would be another one where people would feel ashamed to grieve, especially if mm-hmm. it was one of these hidden ones that are like, yeah. well, that, that shouldn't bother me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my childhood no, that's was a great one. Yeah. My childhood was good, but yet there was these issues, but we're not going to, but overall, well, mm-hmm. the whole knowledge of good and evil, you know, we're going to, it was more good than bad. So we'll ignore the bad. Yeah. Yeah, I see that shame a lot. I already mentioned it as an example, but I see that shame a lot when people have uh, grief that they haven't grieved in past romantic relationships and then they get married. There's a lot of shame connected to that. And then there's a lot of misinterpretation because you feel that feeling. So you think you like this person. You don't like that person. You just never grieved the pain you experienced in that relationship with that person. So it keeps you actually attached to that person. Mm. And that's a very common thing that happens. But if you dealt with the pain and you grieved it, you would let it go. 
which would help strengthen your marriage and help strengthen you. I think a lot of people that have affairs with people from the past is because they're trying to, they're ultimately actually trying to feel and grieve their loss, but they're identifying and connecting to a person from the past. And when we face that pain and we walk through it without shame, because there's no shame in facing your grief, you can be happily married and, and, and be facing that grief that you had a long time ago that you did, that you suppressed. And so again, relationships or experiences that shame says it's wrong or bad or too much to grieve will hinder us dramatically, especially if we had caregivers or people in our life saying it's not that big of a deal, just get over it. Mm-hmm. Well, in the example you gave there of, of someone um, having this pain and then seeking out an affair, and that's just like uh, just another way of medicating and really ultimately another way of not dealing with it. Exactly. Yeah, another way of not dealing with the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how could you compare and contrast a little bit the compassion method approach to the grieving process? And I think I think if if anybody's I think people can already hear that this is a little bit of a different angle on the grieving mm-hmm. process than maybe what they've heard before. But can you just give a little bit of synopsis of like how the compassion method process might be different than maybe some other grief processes or some other things that a person could learn in counseling or so on? So I I think, you know, like when you think about like the five stages of grief or other models that are popular with grief, I do believe that they're beneficial in bringing awareness to the grief. But because they're trying to help your adult self, if the grief happened when you were an adult, help your adult self process the grief, it ends up keeping us more in a limited processing because of the lack of processing the compounded grief. And what I mean by that is, you know, we can help a person become aware, go through the stages, become aware of grief and feel their pain and do those things. But if we don't actually get back to our coding of how we originally learned how to process grief, then we're going to have to manually process grief as an adult. And what that looks like is it's going to keep coming back up because it hasn't properly been taken care of. I often say our adult self is like a website. So how you process adult grief is like a website. You can't change it. So you can get all the awareness through other grief processings, which is is helpful. I'm not negating that that is helpful, but you get all the help from it, but then we never actually apply what we needed specifically in our coding and our early childhood development. So we're still going to be stuck and manually have to keep reinforcing that awareness that we learned or the steps we learned in grief without actually getting to the root of it. For those that maybe haven't heard Laura's statement before that your adult self is like a website and your child self is the coding behind it. Um, when she said you can't change a website, what she was getting at is you can't just pull up a website for, you know, MSNBC or whatever, and go on there and start changing the news headlines. You know, you can't change exactly. that. Um, <laughs> no, but obviously the person that has the access to the back end of that can mm-hmm. change it. And they can change back the coding end. and the changes. Yeah. Exactly. That's so what she's talking about, that. like in her example, like, the difference between her approach and maybe some others would be some others would maybe stay really focused on the present, the here, the now, you know, your husband just passed away and perhaps they wouldn't go chase back after and discover, Oh wait, this felt just like 12 years old. 
And oh man, there's a huge grief source there that never was properly comforted that connects right yeah. back to the coding, yeah. you know, and, and, in, and, in, and in this approach, when you're working with someone, there's a very good chance you'd spend the majority of the time back there. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Because, because now like as said, grown yeah. adults, mm-hmm. they know how to, yeah. we know how to do this, exactly. whether we realize it or not as a grown adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If we let our instinct, if we our instinct to grieve is there, it's just suppressed because in our early childhood development, we never learned how to grieve. And as soon as we heal and bring comfort to our child self and allow our child self to feel the grief and give permission and space to do that, all of a sudden you feel the exact same permission and space and ability to feel it as an adult. And the second thing I would say that's different than the grieving pro- the grieving um, tools or um, traditional that models, people, yeah. traditional models that people go through is what I said before, and I'm going to emphasize it again just because it's very. I think it's actually exciting that this is possible because, again, my perception of grief was there's no way that you can process grief clear minded, tender hearted, and at peace. Those, all three of those, seem contrary to what you would feel grieving. This is different because it allows you to process from your true brain as an adult, which takes that level, you know, hundred pain and brings it down and allows you to feel it and, you know, go through those waves of grief and you know where, what to do with it and you know how to feel it and you know how to bring love into it. And it actually becomes this opportunity for love to come in to not just the present day grief we're experiencing, but through our whole entire lives. So now it's re-breaking a bone to a certain degree to be able to have it heal correctly, which allows even more love and more peace into our lives. So we can, in a way, be even better off after we've grieved and especially grieved compounded grief and we've um, impacted our coding through that process. Now we can actually potentially be more clear-minded, more tenderhearted, more at peace than we were before the person died or before we went through that grief experience. Well, I would say in your, your living example of that. So definitely a living you, example. You would sure. definitely say that you are live a lot more of your life from clear-minded, tenderhearted, and at peace on this side of the grieving process yeah. than the. Oh, again. for sure. I can honestly, did I want Jeff to die? No. Could I have learned this a different way? Probably. But yeah. this was my story and I am sincerely grateful for this process. Mm-hmm. So sincerely grateful because his death actually brought life to me through me being able to grieve so much of my story that I had never grieved that got unearthed through his death. Yeah. So it really was a gift, even though at the time I would never think that way. And if you're, if you listening or going through something very hard, I know it's hard to see it that way, but really his death produced life, not death. You kind of wrap us up today. And you kind of, you kind of just went there and that's where I kind of want to finish is what would you say to someone that feels very stuck right now, very trapped, you know, hopefully today gave some glimmers of hope Mm -hmm. on the other side, but what, what would you like to say in conclusion to someone that might feel that way today? Really distinguish where you're at in your grieving process. As far as are we triggering, are we triggered in our grieving or are we connected to ourselves in our grieving? And this isn't just a one-time question. This is a question to keep asking through your grieving process. Do get a piece of paper, put a T on it. On one side of it, put um, my true self grief. 
On the other side, put my triggered grief. Start writing down when you feel like yourself in your grief. It's still going to be sad. I mean, you could well, you could, you know, cry for hours. You could feel so much pain as your true self processes. So it's not without emotion, but it feels different, less frantic, less out of control, less hopeless, less helpless as we grieve purely for who that person was, not just for what their death brought up inside of us. And one way you can honor someone's death or, or any type of loss, one way you can honor your loss is to take care of the compounded grief, to take care of your past so you can properly grieve who that person was in your life versus just the pain that they brought up in your life. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that is the grief we want to have for someone we love. We don't want to grieve what they resurfaced. I mean, we want to grieve it. We want to grieve that separately. And we want to be able to grieve who that person was to us in our life in the grieving process. And that actually brings hope to the grieving process because I can see who that person is. I'm grieving who they are and the loss that I'm experiencing from them not being on this earth anymore. And I'm grieving their successes and I'm grieving, you know, what could have been and I'm grieving what was and I'm grieving all these things that's directly connected to the person, not just the pain. That's a that's a pretty important distinction, but might be a little bit difficult to get your head around at first first brush, because with the pain, all you see is the pain. It's blinding. It's blinding. We can't see the person anymore. We can only feel the pain that we have because of the loss. But as we. It'll take time and be patient with yourself and don't rush yourself. But as you continue, do the remote control exercise, find your unmet needs, go through the compassion method. And as you do so, it will become more and more clear. Mm -hmm. You know, one way that you might know that you're making progress is, you know, at first, I would imagine that even thinking of those memories of that person would bring Mm -hmm. up so much pain. Yeah, that you too wouldn't much, even, too soon. You yeah. wouldn't even want to. But as you kind of chip away at this by focusing on some of the compounded grief, going back further and bringing comfort, bringing comfort, you probably know you're making progress because now all of a sudden that memory of that vacation you took or that whatever, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that bite to it. Like there's like, there's Doesn't, like some yeah. joy connected to that because it was there a joyful is. thing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite things about this healing process as far as my relationship with my husband that passed away is the pain clouded it so much that I lost sight of all the good. We had mm. been married for eight years before he ever had any symptoms. We had eight years of raising four kids, of great memories, of experiences, of a great relationship that got completely overshadowed by the years of him being sick and him dying. I actually got a picture out of him before he got sick and put it on my phone like I do with the childhood exercise. Mm. And I would look at his picture before he got sick to remember who he was because the pain was so strong because of his death that it actually caused me to look at him in fear because it was so painful what I went through. Mm. But when I put that picture on my phone, I was able to relook at him as who he was. And it brought so much joy and remembering of so much good. There was so much good compared to how much hard things that we went through. That's really powerful. Well, Laura, I would like to just thank you and thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for being vulnerable, for pursuing your heart, 
and not giving up on your heart. All those was, are we, are we at like the 13 year mark now? Is it 14 mm-hmm. years this yeah, year? I think it might be 14 years this year. Yeah, yeah. 14 years this year. Yeah. And 14 years ago of not giving up, pursuing your heart, attacking your grief, learning mm-hmm. how to comfort your grief, yeah. seeing there's more than more behind your grief than the obvious and creating a method and a process out of it that, that helps hundreds of thousands of people to this day and probably more than we can even comprehend. So thanks, thanks Brian. That means a lot. I know yeah. it's me going through it, but I'm like, it was a very courageous thing to do. And I'm really 100%. grateful for myself, for my kids, for my family, but also for you that are listening that my suffering could bring life. Yes. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Triggered and True. As always, if you have any questions or comments on today's episode, um, please let us know. Goodbye. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Triggered and True. We hope that you enjoyed it. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, go to triggeredandtrue.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click ask. And if you would like to learn more about the Compassion Method, be sure to check out the Compassion Method Master Course, which can be purchased at CompassionMethod.net. And as a podcast listener, you qualify for a $50 discount, which can be obtained by typing in the coupon code PODCAST50. Again, that's CompassionMethod.net, coupon code PODCAST50. Thank you again. Goodbye. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Triggered and True. We hope that you enjoyed it. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, go to triggeredandtrue.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click ask. And if you would like to learn more about the Compassion Method, be sure to check out the Compassion Method Master Course, which can be purchased at CompassionMethod.net. And as a podcast listener, you qualify for a $50 discount, which can be obtained by typing in the coupon code PODCAST50. Again, that's CompassionMethod.net, coupon code PODCAST50. Thank you again. Goodbye.